Okay, grab your Bibles, and let's get back to work. Um, Matthew, that's in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want to read you um, the first two verses, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 7. I'm going to read you the last two verses. Here we go. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. And what I've just read you brother and sister in Christ, is the opening verse and a half of the Sermon on the Mount and the closing two verses of the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who don't know, the Sermon on the Mount is contained in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. If you've never heard of the Sermon on the Mount, um, it is one sermon that Jesus taught at the opening of his ministry, it is famous. There is, um, there is so much written and said about it. It's, it, it's mind-boggling. I started to bring a stack of books in here and just show you what I've got in my library. But take my word for it. It's, uh, it's staggering what's all said and um, uh, written about Sermon on the Mount. Let me tell you why I'm, I'm introducing the Sermon on the Mount, just real quickly. Uh, about a year ago, I was invited to speak to a group of pastors at an extension seminary in the Czech Republic. Now, you may not know this, but the Czech Republic is considered one of the most non-Christian nations in all of Europe. It's estimated, I think, by the Czechs that three-tenths of one percent of the population of the Czech Republic is Christian. And so, uh, this little seminary, it's, it's not huge, don't get to, it's a small extension seminary. It's run by Marshall Brown. He was here back in January, and I introduced him to you. Well, Marshall um, asked me to come over and teach the Sermon on the Mount. And so I am going to speak for 20 hours on the Sermon on the Mount uh, right after Easter. Uh, Eight hours on Friday, eight hours on Saturday, and four hours on Sunday on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That's That's a lot of talking. In, um, uh, in a weekend. In, um, in terms of English sermons, that would be about 40 sermons. But I'm not going to do 40 sermons on, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to do three. I'm going to preach one sermon on Matthew 5, one sermon on Matthew 6, and one sermon on Matthew 7. And, and my, my primary reason is I'd like to give you just a little hint or a little I'd like you to know what I'm telling these people uh, who are pastors and, and so much of the religious and spiritual future 
lies in their hands. In these small little Czech churches with pastors who don't have a tenth of the training that I've been privileged to get. So that's what I'm going to do, and that's why I'm, I want you to look at the Sermon on the Mount with me. Okay, I hope you've still got your Bibles open. Let me show you. Let me, let me just kind of get us a running start here. You'll notice, of course, that this takes place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I mean, he's 30 years old, and he is he's on his way. Uh, chapter 3 ends with his being baptized. Chapter 4 opens with this, um, this appointment that he had with the devil. And he's tempted by the devil out in the wilderness. You remember that? The temptation of Christ by Satan. After Satan is defeated, we're told in the rest of, well, the uh, chapter, verse 12 of chapter 4, that he begins to um, begin his ministry. And then beginning in verse uh, 18, he um, selects the 12 apostles. And then I, I want you to see in verse 23 uh, this statement. This is chapter 4 now. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So uh, here he is traveling all around Galilee, meeting in all the synagogues and teaching. And as a result of his teaching, there there were people that were healed. And the crowds begin to gather, large crowds. And, and you can imagine that they would be wanting to hear what this guy was teaching. And, and um, as a result of the crowds being large, we're told in chapter 5, verse 1, sing the crowds. Jesus, uh, impressed with the size of the crowds that will no longer fit inside a synagogue, sits down on a, um, a hillside and he teaches. And what he taught is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, again, what did he teach? Well, he taught the Sermon on the Mount, bozo. You know, you numb skull. It's right where you just told us. But I want you to look a little bit more closely about what he taught. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, guys, the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom sermon. The ministry of Jesus Christ is a kingdom ministry. Now, this may be somewhat of a new thought for y'all, for some of you. But guys, this is the best way I know how to at least make my point or at least prove my point. Do you remember something about the parables of Jesus Christ? I mean, they're all through the, the Gospels. His parables, do you remember how they started? Just about all of them start like this. And the kingdom of heaven is like. And the kingdom of heaven resembles. All of his parables are designed to tell you and explain to you the kingdom. 
he says at one point, if you're going to enter the kingdom, you're going to have to enter it like a little child. Because, gang, the point that I'm, I'm trying to make is this. From the outset of his ministry, whether it was large crowds or small crowds, whether it was indoors or outdoors, the subject of what Jesus is teaching is the kingdom. Now, to do that, it has some very radical implications. Um, not the least of which is that by his teaching a kingdom, he has placed himself squarely on a collision course with every other allegiance known to man. With every other authority base known to man, he has now um, made himself an opponent, uh, one's allegiance to Rome. Or one's allegiance to Judaism. Or one's allegiance to Israel. Or one's allegiance to self. Are now in opposition to the kingdom. Jesus arrives on the scene, gang, not announcing a new religion, a new philosophy, a new ideology. He comes to announce... The kingdom. And that's not new. That is, that kingdom is not new. Now, gang, uh, that may not grab you, um, what I've said thus far, but I'm going to spend the rest of my time trying to show you why it should grab you. Why it should stir you. So stay with me. Gang, when, when Christianity arrived in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, that world into which Christianity came was a world that was full of, of religions and gods. All kinds of religions, all kinds of gods. I mean, think of Paul in Acts 17 in Athens, and he's walking up and down the streets and seeing all the gods. But that was Athens. We're really talking now about Rome. But Rome had, Rome had its own set of gods. I mean, you've, you've heard of most of them. There was Cupid. I mean, that's not a Valentine's thing. That's a Roman god. Did you know that? He's the god of romance. Well, she is. There's the, uh, the, there's Venus. She was the god of sex and beauty. There was uh, Jupiter. He's the, he's the big dog. There was Saturn. And there was Neptune. There was Minerva. Minerva is the god of the SAEs. <laughs> See, there's not many SAEs in the room. Because if you were an SAE, you'd know what that means. But, but all, I'm, all I'm saying is, guys, there were lots of religions. And there were lots of gods. Um, and so Christianity arrives on the scene, and so you just, 
Why not just add it to the list of the numerous gods and religions that are available? Stoicism and Gnosticism and Mithraism and, and all those isms, just throw it in there. Oh, no, 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 no. No, we can't do that. We can't add it to the list. Why not? Gang, have you ever wondered why it is that it was Christians who were burned as street lamps in Rome instead of Stoics? Or why was it just the Christians that were thrown to the lions instead of the Gnostics? Why was it the Christians? You know why? It was the whisper of a kingdom. You see, guys, for a kingdom to exist, there's got to be a king. And not only that, there's got to be subjects of that king. And then there has to be a code of conduct expected by the king from the subjects. You see, all those other religions, they were just religions. But Christianity was a kingdom. And everything about it was a threat to the status quo. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what you find in the Sermon on the Mount. It is radical everything. Everything about it is radical. Let me give you two examples of what I mean by being radical. Okay, you just said, Jimmy, that you've got to have some subjects for the kingdom. Okay, the subjects are described. Did you realize that? The subjects of the kingdom are described in the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. It begins in uh, the uh, verse 3, and it goes really through the um, verse 11. So you want a description of those subjects who belong to this radical kingdom? Well, here it is. Uh, those people are... Verse 3, poor in spirit. Verse 4, they mourn. Verse 5, they're meek. Verse 6, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, they're merciful. Verse 8, they're pure in heart. Verse 9, they're peacemakers. Verse 10, they're persecuted. You want to know what the subjects of this kingdom look like? There it is, right there. They're... They're meek, they're peacemakers, they're hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're poor in spirit, they mourn, they're merciful, and they get persecuted. Um, people who belong to the kingdom that Jesus brings, that's what they look like. And then their ethic, their code of conduct, oh my goodness, it is just nothing short of... Dare I say it, radical? I mean, just, just one quick example. You know, if he slaps you on this cheek, turn the other cheek. Well, gang, no Roman turned another cheek. I mean, that, that, that kind of, that, that kind of code of conduct, that, that does nothing but just get you in trouble. Folks, by teaching about a kingdom, 
Jesus is assuming the spot of cosmic authority, of cosmic rule. And he issues a sermon that describes the people who are participants in that kingdom and their lifestyle, their ethic, their code of conduct. It's a description about what they look like and how those people live. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is, guys. This sermon is the Magna Carta of the kingdom of God and everything about it. All its demands, all its descriptions, all its provisions, everything about it is radical. And by preaching it, Jesus places himself squarely on a throne in his opening salvo. It is the king versus all those other little kings. Now, gang, um, much to our sadness, at least it should be our sadness, that over the centuries, Christianity has been toned down. It's been, it's been niceified for lots of different reasons and from lots of different ways. But in its purest form, radical. Radical was its, was its middle name. But there's hope. Um, uh, I mean, what we've got in the 21st century, <laughs> not in a lot of ways does it resemble what, what it looked like in the first century. But there's hope. I want to tell you a little story that uh, Philip Yancey tells. It's about a friend of his who, whose name is Virginia Owens. And Virginia Owens is a professor at Texas A&M, and she teaches English. Actually, I didn't know they spoke English at Texas A&M, but, but they do. And uh, it, she's a professor of English at Texas A&M. And, and um, uh, she assigned to her class, her English composition class, she assigned the Sermon on the Mount to be the subject of an essay. All of her students were to write an essay about the Sermon on the Mount. I, I want to read you five statements that were made by the students at Texas A&M uh, in their essays about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, here's one. In my opinion, religion is one big hoax. Here's another. There's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read. And it certainly applies in this case. Number three. Um, the stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking... It is, is it a sin or not? She needs some English training right there. Uh, number four. I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect. No one is. Here's the last one. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. And then in response to all this, Virginia Owens writes this, and I, I loved her, her assessment. She says, at this point, I begin to be 
encouraged. Encouraged, you say. There is something exquisitely innocent about not realizing that you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. This was the real thing. A pristine response to the gospel, unfiltered through a two-millennia cultural haze. I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains so offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. For me, that somehow validates its significance. Whereas the scriptures almost lost their characteristically astringent flavor during the past century. Listen, gang. The current widespread biblical illiteracy should catapult us into a situation more nearly approximating that of the original first century audience. Now that is good news. That somehow, because there is such widespread biblical ignorance, that if we start preaching this thing, then we won't be dealing with all of this, this, uh, what does she call it, cultural haze. And it will be just as offensive to our audiences today as it was in the first century. Because they will see it for what it really is. Radical. Now, gang, that's the first reason that I think all of this kingdom talk ought to grab you. Because, gang, the more biblical ignorance there is, the more kind of hostility we as the people of God are going to face as we try to live out a kingdom life. Now, there's a couple other reasons that I, I've been, uh, three I think, that I want to tell you why this kingdom stuff ought to grab you. Here's the second reason. Gang, men today and everybody in this room, you belong to one of two kingdoms. And there's only two. And both of these kingdoms are reflected in the lives of their subjects. Let me say that, let me say that differently. The kind of life that you live tells people what kingdom you belong to. Gang, um, this is a famous work. I, I mentioned it to a man on Friday, and he had never heard of it. And I, and I guess, I guess I shouldn't assume that you have heard of this. Is the City of God by Augustine? The very subject of this book is the two kingdoms, and he calls them cities: the City of God and the City of Man. Now, I've, I've referred to this before, but there's there's only two kingdoms, and what he says in there is that they exist coterminously. That is, they exist at the same time and often in the same place. And there is a bit of overlap in the two kingdoms. For instance, both kingdoms value health. Both kingdoms value education. 
But fundamentally, ladies and gentlemen, fundamentally, these two kingdoms are in violent opposition. And they are in violent opposition because they are headed up by, by two different kings. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he doesn't tell people that they need to get saved. He tells them that they need to enter the kingdom. That get saved business. Oh, that was evangelicalism's device. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not trying to undercut the, the, the glory of seeing people one to Jesus Christ by faith. No. But do you understand how meager that is? What Jesus came telling people is not, and listen, you need to get your ticket to heaven stuck in your pocket. No, no. He arrives on the scene to announce a kingdom. My friend, you must make no mistake about this. You are in one of those two kingdoms this very moment. And the way that you can find out which one you're in is by just examining the lifestyle that you lead. Because that'll tell you. So that's the second thing that ought to grab you about this kingdom conversation. (laughs) There's only two of them. And you're either in one or the other. Here's the third thing. And and to do this, I've really kind of got to go in the back door. So kind of stay with me. Guys, in the history of Israel, early on in the history of Israel, she asked Samuel for a king. You know, um, if you don't don't know anything about the Old Testament, Israel kind of came out of Egypt and she was ruled by judges. You remember, well, the last judge was a guy by the name of Samuel. And Samuel was a good one. He was a great one. He was the one that anointed uh, Saul and David. But they come to Samuel. Israel comes to Samuel and says, we want a king. We want a king like all those other nations. We want to be like them. Give us a king. And Samuel's very upset about it. And, and, um, but God says, okay, no, 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 no. Now, they didn't reject you. They rejected me. Give them a king. And, and Samuel goes out and tries to talk him out of it. He tries to dissuade them from a king. And here's how he does it. This is, you don't need to turn here, but this is 1 Samuel 8. He tells them, okay, if you get a king, this is verse 11, he will take your sons. If you get a king, verse 13, he will take your daughters. If you get a king, verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, if you get a king, he will take the tenth of your grain. If you get a king, in verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men. Do you understand? If you get a king, he will take, 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 he will take from you. And they said, Yeah, but could we still have one? Now, guys, um, here's my point. In contrast to that king, the only king who is known 
Not for what he took, but for what he gave. Is the one that people despise. Refuse, reject, ignore, resist. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't want the king that gives. We prefer the one that takes. So all I'm saying to you guys is, in terms of this kingdom conversation stirring you, grabbing you, there's only two kingdoms. And there's only two kings. And the one king does nothing but take from you. And the good king, whose name is Jesus, gave for you. Those two kings are radically different. And still, the great majority of mankind, they want the one who takes. We've got to hurry. There's one on the point, and it's really my main one. Here's the, here's the fourth reason that this whole thing should grab you guys. The whole idea of Jesus in this setting in Matthew 5, announcing a kingdom... And kingdom ethics and all that goes along with it is a really a bit absurd. Uh, it's absurd in light of the historical situation at that moment. I mean, I mean, look around you, you bozo. Rome is in full charge of everything around here. Don't you see their boots and their soldiers? I mean, what are you talking about a kingdom for? Rome's a king. And there comes Jesus talking about being a king. Well, guys, um, uh, just a quick illustration. It, this really comes from um, Charles Burkhoff. Burkhoff says that the Christian situation today is much like experienced by the Dutch in what they called the hunger winter of 1944 and 45. Now, you remember what was going on in 44 and 45, at least I hope. World War II was going on, and the Germans occupied the Netherlands. But on June the 6th of 1944, the Allies established a beachhead on the coast of France. And from there, they pushed Hitler and his troops all the way back to Berlin and won the war. Once that beachhead was established, Hitler was defeated. However, Hitler still had troops all over the Netherlands. And that was in the summer of 44. Uh, Burkhoff is talking about the winter of 44-45. The hunger, starvation winter. Because the Germans were still there and they were still polishing their boots and they were still, you know, strutting around the streets of Amsterdam, acting like they were the big shots. But, and they killed people, they, they oppressed the Dutch. But there was still a significant rise and change in the morality of the Dutch, the Dutch, because they knew that D-Day meant Hitler was doomed. And that kingdom, though it was everywhere around them, it was defeated. What I'm saying to you guys is that we as the people of God, we live in a hunger winter. With the death of Jesus Christ, victory is done. But there's a whole lot of losses that occur. So how are we supposed to live in this hunger winter of ours? I want to read you this. You're not going to like it. Because you're not going to be able to, because it's pretty long. But this is a description of the first century church by a Roman historian whose name is Diognetus. 
This is a description of the first century church with Rome everywhere. Here's what they look like. They dwell in their country, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every country of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all of them. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed and they are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That my friends was written by a pagan describing the church. Because it seems to me that the first century church understood they were a part of a kingdom. Guys, I know that the times are different. This is the 21st century and nobody is, you know, persecuting us. Nobody is putting us in jail and throwing us to lions. But how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live in this hunger winter of ours? Can I tell you? You want vision from me? Well, here it is. Here's vision for you, ladies and gentlemen. Here's how we're supposed to live. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus meets with the twelve and he says, You know, the Gentiles lord it over them. You know, do you know, you know how the world understands how to get influence and how to get, how to, um, to gain power, it's through position and rank and, and prestige and status and all that. And, and Jesus says, that's how the Gentiles do it. But it shall not be so among you. You shall serve. You want to know how we're supposed to be living in the hunger winter? Gang, did you see that bulletin? Did you see it? Did you see that there's $345,000 that has been given more than the budget of last year? Did you see that? What are we going to do with that? You want to spend it and don't make it us more comfortable than we already are? No! Ladies and gentlemen, you know how we're going to get influence in this community? Is by serving it. And we're going to look at Houston High School, and we're going to look at Briarcrest, and we're going to look at St. George's, and we're going to look at Kyerville, and we're going to say, you want somebody to take advantage of? Take advantage of us! Oh, but Jimmy, they came over and they used our gym, and they stole $500 worth of basketballs. Well, that's bad. I'm sorry they stole the basketballs, but you know what? We'll buy some more basketballs. We got $345,000. And we'll spend it, and we'll spend it, and we'll spend it serving this community. To the point that 
this non-Christian community of ours will think, I don't even like to think of my community without Gracie Van being in it. I don't want to see Gracie Van taken out of my community because do you see those people doing things so unlike the Gentiles? Gang, if you know me, you know that the number one fear I have in life is take, being taken advantage of. People taking advantage of me. And you know, it's, it's kind of comical. Because that's exactly what God would have me do. You want influence in this community? Then we're going to serve it. And we're going to give to it. And we're going to sacrifice for it. And they're going to take advantage of us. And that's just part of the cost of doing business as subjects of the King of Kings. Gang, the Sermon on the Mount, if you read it rightly, there is no place in the Bible where you will be able to hear the message of the doctrine of justification by faith alone better than in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in it, you're going to find radical, radical demands. And also you're going to find radical grace. You're going to find radical depravity. You mean I'm supposed to look like that? Yeah, yeah, that's what it means. And then you're also going to define radical salvation. Do you know what we have to offer the world? A king. Father, I pray that you will grip the people of Gracie Van with the sense that this is not this is not a country club, this is not a a social club, it's not a religious institution, it's a, it's a small little enclave of kingdom representatives given a task, given a task to serve you by serving the other kingdom. And might that other kingdom be able to write something about us one day? as countercultural and counterintuitive as Diogenes wrote about the first century church. Might our community one day, Lord, be able to say, I, I didn't agree with their theology. But that group of people, they gave, and they gave, and they gave. Might that be known of us, O oh God? as we serve our blessed Savior King. In Jesus' name we pray.